<laughs> All right. Everyone open up to Malachi. So, was not here last week, but the week before that, uh, I taught in Malachi. And Gil posted after that message on Facebook that I was beginning a series in Malachi. And I, I very quickly saw that. And then I, you're shaking your head no. Is, is, this, is this an untruthitude? It is an untruthitude? But I could have swore I saw the series in Malachi. Or did you change it? No. Okay. You said you were starting a new four-week series. Okay. There you go. You didn't say you were in, Malachi. in Malachi. So I misread. In my haste and panic, I misread as a series in Malachi. And, and I, was, I was terrified because um, that message was so bad. Uh, it was it was frighteningly awful, and it seemed just dreadfully heavy. Uh, I I did not want to do more messages in Malachi if it could be avoided, and I felt as if it could. And then I saw that on Facebook, and everything on Facebook is essentially written in stone. So I knew that my fate was sealed. Um, but I think I can get out of here with, with only one more message in Malachi. So that's what we're gonna do. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Uh, I, I've been, uh, I've been teaching the Bible now for, for 10 years and it's not very long, but, uh, but for 10 years I've been doing, uh, been doing Bible studies and, uh, I could put my finger on now the, the single worst message I've ever done in my entire life. And, and it was that one. And, and, I, and I put my finger on it, and I was like, that's, that's, that's it. And subsequently, I've talked to you know, several people about that message, and, uh, and, and you know, it's, uh, it was, it's, it's a dreadful conversation every single time. I think the most recent one was, was Beth, and she came up to the house, and she wasn't even here for that message. But she came up, and she was like, hi, you know, and she's just, she's best. She's fantastic. And I was like, okay, so just in case you ever do go to the Genesis website and listen, let me, let me preface uh, by saying terrible, you know, just that's, that's the commentary. But I was up until, you know, one in the morning, the night of, and this is leading into the message. So I'm not just, not just speaking ill of myself, you know, for, uh, for, you know, pointless reasons here. There's, there's a direction here. And, uh, and, and it was about one in the clock the night before that, that message, or I guess since it's in the morning, it is the day of, and, and the message finally came. And it began with Malachi 1, verse 2, which just says very simply, I have loved you. And Malachi 1, 2, that's the, that's the way God starts speaking to his people, and that's the first thing God started speaking to me. He said, listen, I just want to remind you of that. But before I, before I lay into you, uh, I, I want you to, to mark this down. R- really, because you've been, you, you, you've been skating by, disregarding me. Right, you've been coming before me, saying that you're you're serving me and worshiping me and all this and so on and so forth. But you're you're not bringing your best. And every single time you come before me and and you say you're just laying it all down at my feet, you're really offering me this kind of good enough sacrifice. And, and relationally, you've been satisfied with just that, with, with good enough uh, as as the moniker attached to. Uh, this supposed Christianity that you've created. Um, 
That was the message I gave from Malachi. That was the message I gave to you. And and you and and it was one of those messages where where after I'm done and uh, and I thought that I was, it was very strategic to tell Tony to do three songs after, but didn't help at all. Still, after all of that, uh, it was it was absolutely silent. You all seemed uh, somber, and and I just I felt sad. I felt I felt. I felt like a rotten human being uh, and that I'd just done a terrible thing. And I was talking to Daniel Jacobs. He came to my house on Tuesday. He's had a couple of weeks off work um, because he's recovering from surgery. And Daniel Jacobs, uh, and, and for some reason I speak about him all the time in, in my messages. I don't know if it's a, it's a man crush type of thing going on, but he's a great guy. I just <laughs> love the guy to death. And, uh, and he has skin cancer, right? And that's, that's why he had surgery. He has skin cancer. He's had it. Uh, since, um, well, he's been diagnosed with it since he was about 15 years old. Hey there, how you doing? Yeah, there you go. And uh, and so he's at my house. We're all sitting on the porch. And, uh, well, we're all, and it's just the two of us. But he comes to my house, and we're sitting on the porch. And he's he's talking to me, and we're, we're talking uh, about uh, his surgery that he just went through. And he said that he just got this huge cancerous spot removed on his back. Now, every... Every few months he goes in, they take out a couple of moles and they test them. And if they are cancerous, then they need to broaden the scope and keep on removing, uh, you know, larger segments of his back to get to the to get to the cancer. And and he's still waiting to hear back from his doctor if they uh, got it all out of there, or if they need to go deeper. And he looked at me and he said, you know, because we had already talked about this message and he wasn't here that Thursday, but I was telling him about how it's the worst thing I've ever done to a group of people in my entire life. And he said, uh, you know, there came a point in my life when I realized that I had skin cancer, right? And he said, I went in for a procedure, I was diagnosed, and I was treated, right? But it's not as if at that moment I stopped having cancer, right? He said, uh, it's, it's in my skin. I have cancer. I, I always have. I always will. I'm genetically predisposed to have cancer. So it's going to be something that he deals with uh, all of his days. It's just constantly coming up on his flesh. And he said, that's why I go in every few months, right? Every few months I have to go in. It has to be checked and it has to be removed. And it would be a terrible thing if every single time I went in, after that first initial visit where they gave me the hard news, they were over giving me the hard news, and they said, you're fine, everything's good, that cancer, that was a one-time thing, you never have to worry about that again, you can go out there on your merry way and enjoy your life, and and uh, they, they give you a smile and a big hug, and, and, and you're at home feeling great, but no, you still have cancer, right? It's still in your skin, right? And it's healthy, for us to be confronted with the reality of that. The reality is, is that uh, Christ has dealt with this stuff eternally. He says here in verse 2, I, I love you. I always have. I always will. You are mine. Nothing is going to change that. Right? And Jesus, Jesus spoke of this, uh, you know, in, in, in this symbolic manner in the upper room washing the disciples' feet. You know, when he goes to wash Peter's feet and Peter says, of course, no, no, how, you know, heaven forbid you should wash my feet, you know, and, and then Jesus says, you know, like, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no place in my kingdom. Then he's like, oh, then you should wash all of me. And then Jesus says, well, you, you, you don't need that. 
And you see, those who have already been given a bath only need their feet to be washed, right? John chapter 13. So sin is dealt with eternally, right? We've been washed of it uh, positionally, but practically and presently we reek of it, right? We're walking around and, and, and with every step we pick up bits and pieces of it. And as we come uh, to the upper room to sit and, and sup with our Savior, he, he doesn't just say, oh, good, I'm so glad you're here. Um, and, and, and you're fine, everything's fine, and, and he's looking at us and we're filthy, and he says, oh, you never need to shower again. You're great. And, and he's holding his nose, you know, so he doesn't have to endure our funk, right? He's, and he's lying to our face. And, 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 he, and he says, oh, there, there's, no, there's no cancer uh, upon you. You're, you're clean and you're pure and you're wonderful and you're glorious. It's like you're already glorious here on earth and it's just fine and everything is hunky-dory you just come in whenever you want and there's never a problem we can get together and we can just talk about hugging each other we could talk about loving each other we could talk about kissing each other and we could and and, and i was about to say we could practice and that would be weird because there's a disproportionate amount of men here so he's but this it's you know it's, it's you know that, that's not what he does that's not what he does he confronts us with the harsh reality of our present position and he says, there are problems, right? You can't just come in, into the office constantly and hear that you're cancer-free because that's not the reality. In, in your skin, there exists this ongoing disease that occasionally comes to the surface. You're genetically predisposed to it. You're spiritually predisposed to it. And he desires our best, Right? And because he desires our best, sometimes uh, it's best for us to be brutally confronted with our worst. Right, And that's, and that's what I felt like that last message was. Uh, it was the worst message I've ever given. But, but, but I, it, it felt for me uh, uh, that it was something of pressing necessity for me, specifically. And, and maybe, maybe for... For you as well. And tonight, I'm going to do a second part to it. So in all probability, this will be the second worst message that I've ever given in my entire life. But I, I, I will say that, that this one is, is an easier uh, message to endure on your part. So hopefully it won't be so dreadful and you won't leave here silently and, and scowling at me on your way out. Thanks for ruining my night. Uh, but in Malachi 1, God levied this indictment against his people, right? He levies this indictment against his people, and he says, you have, you have gone away from me in, 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 in a threefold manner. He said, you've abandoned me as your king, as your master, and as your father. And my original uh, idea for the next messages in this kind of Malachi series or under the, the series associated with the first message would be to consider God in each one of those three positions. So we do a message on God or, or, or essentially returning to God as our king, then returning to God as our master, and then returning to God as our father. 
Um, but uh, as, as I began to prepare it, and I prepared you know, three points for each and every one of them, the conclusions all started overlapping. And then the points all started overlapping. And, and, and because there is a great amount of overlap between those three positions. You know, a king, you would say, the primary responsibility of a king would be to protect his kingdom's citizens, right? And he's speaking strictly of an earthly king, right? That's why he's there. He's going to protect people. And, but is this not also one of the primary functions of a father, right? He's going to protect his sons and daughters. And then biblically, you would take a look at a master and you would say, uh, well, a, mas- a good master ought to provide for his servants, right? Give them everything they need so they can be out and about, uh, you know, dealing with their master's business. They don't need to worry about their daily needs and requirements, but the same could be said about a good king and a good father as well. And I think that we can sum up uh, all of this in one study and simply say that we were born into the house of a great king, as Malachi 1, uh, and I believe it's verse 14 says it is. We're born into the house of a great king, and he is master over all. And this great king and master happens to be our father. And it's an amazing thing to consider. He is king over all creation, right? All things are under him, and he is master over them, and yet he, he, he doesn't lord his stature over them, and he doesn't lord it over us. He doesn't bark orders at us from some high hill. He, he speaks tenderly uh, to us as, as a wounded father, and that's the tone of this chapter. And he sets aside his, his royal robes and he disregards his, uh, his, his masterly uh, distance. And he stoops down right, as a father with arms wide open to his children. He says, I am a great king and I am a mighty master. But what I want to be to you, what I want to share with you is this wonderful role of wrapping all of that up into the position of a father. Um, you know, we have these weird ways of looking at God. You know, we, we often look at God, and, and I think many Christians consider God as this kind of distant king. And our relationship with God doesn't need to go any farther than someone that we we swear allegiance to the way that you would swear allegiance to a king and he's someone at some point in our life you know uh, we 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 confessed you know our allegiance to we we burnt a pinch of incense to you know if you were in Rome 2000 years ago which one of you which none of you are so i don't know why i said that but you might have done that you know and and that's maybe as deep as it goes you know and god this is my relationship to you you are my king and and and, and that's good. You're over there. You're doing king stuff. I'm over here. I'm going to be doing people stuff. And, and for many people, that's enough. That's never what God wanted. And for other people, we had this uh, view of God, and he's my master. And he's someone that I need to mechanically serve. 
and, and many of us spend our entire Christian lives there, and we look at those people that view God only as a king, and, and we say, oh, well, it's sad that they're missing out on so much because I do this for God, and I do that for God, and I'm constantly out busying myself with the work of God, and I'm mechanically pushing forward in my service for God. But that's, that's not what God wanted either, right? He is a king. He is our master. He wraps it up in, in all of that in saying, you're, you're, you're great and glorious king, and, 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 and you're wonderful and, and, and purposeful master. Wants to be, wants to be your father. Right? He doesn't want to have this general position over you the way that your boss has a general position over a bunch of employees and the way a king would have a general position over a bunch of citizens. He wants to have a specific and unique interaction with you as your father. And the first uh, relational tie mentioned in Malachi is that of the father. And it begins in Malachi 1.6, a passage that we read last time we were together and said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? So first and foremost, I am a father. And now let's look a little bit more closely and see how scripture characterizes our father. Um, you know, we each have a father, and, and one of the things that uh, always blew me away, is, when I first became a Christian, uh, this was about 12 years ago, um, yeah, 12 years ago, and I remember people talking about their heavenly father, this relationship that they can have with father, and then, then someone uh, expressed to me that it's a bad idea to characterize God as our father, because everyone has hang-ups about their father, Right? People have good fathers, they have bad fathers, right? They have generous fathers, they have stingy fathers, they have affectionate fathers, they have cold fathers. And and because everyone has such a different and personal, unique experience with their own father, it's a bad idea to characterize God as your father. And I remember hearing that, and I was a brand new believer, and I thought, well, that's silly. Because I don't have a great father. But I imagine that God is a great father. So I just think of God as everything that my father is not. And it's not to say that my father, my own earthly father doesn't have his great points. But I think, well, those are his great points. Well, God must be so much greater in those points. And then I look at him and I think, well, these are his weak points. Well, God has no weak points. And then I look at God and I say, well, you must just be the perfect, ideal, most glorious, wonderful father out there. And the first flag word that we see in the constant throughout scripture that characterizes God as our father is love. Right? And if you're quick with your, with your fingers, you can go to 1 John. And that's going to be the passage that we kind of look and, and, and frame uh, this, uh, this teaching about our father under so 1 John chapter 3 reads this way. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And I want to pause there. Now, we might think a million things about our earthly father, all right? But one thing that we should know about our heavenly father is that he is a father of love, now, it is noted, right, it must be noted at this point, uh, setting aside the fatherhood of God 
God is characterized as a God of love. Is he not? Right? Like that's something that we know, right? God, God is love. He loves all, right? You shouldn't be, I guess maybe I shouldn't say you shouldn't be. You would be surprised by how many Christians there are that actually take issue with such a, a flat statement like that. God is love. He loves everyone, right? That's who God is, right? He's just, a, he's a super loving God. Um, and, and of course, you can look to John 3.16 and support a statement like that if you actually ever need to support that to someone who takes issues or takes issue with that. Um, and we talked about that last time we were in Malachi. There's something simple and beautiful about John 3.16 to support biblical doctrine because everyone knows it and just says, for God so loved the world, right? So that's talking about a whole mess of people. It's actually talking about the whole lot of people. Every person that is, you know, ever been, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? So while God ha- has loved everyone, he is not the father of everyone. And that's where we deviate to narrow our conversation, right? God loves everyone. He's not the father of everyone. John 1, 12. You write that down if you're quick with your with your scriptures. You can... Flip on over there. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All right, so those who believe in him, he's given the right to become children of God. So now we have God loving everyone, God specifically having this love for his children. He loves us all. We're not all of his children. And, uh, and let me illustrate it this way. Me, in my own gruff way, I love kids, right? And uh, and that's that's a weird thing for me to say, um, because I'm not a person, or I'm not maybe the first person that, that you would uh, that you would associate love with, right? But like I, I love I love kids. I work with kids. That's that's my job, right? And that's also not maybe the first thing that I think someone would choose for a job for me. Let's put that uh, mean guy around kids, you know. But that's that's what happened. <laughs> But not all those kids are my kid, right? And there is a love that I have for those kids, and then there's a love that I have for my own kid, right? And and they're fundamentally different. Now, this is a theological note, right? There's lots of little notes that we're, we're needing to drop here. Uh, because it has to be said, you know, lest someone comes up to me after the study and says, Hey, buddy, I thought God had perfect love, right? And, and it's true. God does have this perfect love. There's no varying degrees where God's like, I love everybody, but I really love my kids, right? Because that's the way we feel. And you don't want to know why we feel that way? Because we're wicked, right? That's, that's actually the reality of it. God loves everyone perfectly. So there's no varying degrees of God's love, right? And and the only difference between the way God loves the world and the way God loves his children is that we, because of our position, have made ourselves the uh, uninhibited recipients of God's love. Because we're his children, we're in his care, he can love us the way that he wants to love everyone, but can't because they aren't his children, Right? They're denying him, they're refusing him, so he can't love him like he really wants to. So it's right for a father to make his own children the uninhibited recipients of his love. It is not right for a father to make other people's children the uninhibited recipients of his love. Right? He has love for everybody, 
but it is not accepted or deemed acceptable to love others the way that he desires to. And before you decry that conclusion, let me illustrate it thusly. Right? It would be like a child coming to pick up their parents at, or pick up their ch- child. We have the reverse way around. Because child, I don't tutor parents. Right? There are some parents that, never mind, that would be insulting to them. But it would be like a parent coming to pick up their child after a one hour of private instruction with me and they walk through the doors at the brain zone and, and they, they, you know, they step in and they see me cradling their child in my arms and, uh, and stroking their hair and kissing their cheeks and whispering into their ears, Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. Right? First, first, the child would be creeped out beyond belief <laughs> if I did that to them. Right? I'm sitting there holding this kid, you know, and I'm, I'm kissing them and they're just like, wow, I, I don't know why this is happening. This is... So weird, you know, but then the parent, right, the mother that comes in would be outraged and offended, right, because I I am a father, but I'm not their father. Their father is another father, and this is how they see God. So daily, these great overtures of love are poured out upon the world, and, uh, and they deny him, and they cling to another confess that other as their father. But if you're his child, then you are the unique recipient of his uninhibited gestures of kindness and love. And it's always there, right? That love is constantly perfect, pure, and whole being poured out upon the entire world indiscriminately. But... Because of our position, we make ourselves the recipient of that love. Now, we become the recipient of the love of God despite our efforts to merit it or the evils that we daily uh, commit that would repel it, right? And, and no one has uh, unpacked this idea better than Spurgeon, Right? And Spurgeon has a wonderful way of doing those things. I'm going to read a quote from him in a couple of minutes uh, that is very weird. Right? But this one is great. So enjoy this one. All right? Then we'll get to the next one later. Sonship is a thing uh, which all the infirmities of our flesh, all the sins into which we are hurried by temptation, can never violate or weaken. A man hath a child. You're going to love this. This is getting good. That child on a sudden is bereaved of its senses and becomes an idiot. What a grief that is to the father for a child to become a lunatic or an idiot and to exist only as an animal, apparently without a soul. But the idiot child is a child and the lunatic child is a child still. And if we are the fathers of such children, they are ours. And all the idiocy and all the lunacy that can possibly befall them can never shake the fact that they are our sons. Oh, what a mercy when we transfer this to God's case and ours. How foolish we are sometimes. How worse than foolish. But thanks be unto God, we are his children still. Oh, that is a wonderful thing to consider. Right? Because we can so easily find ourselves in this category where we, we, where we tend towards uh, you know, stupidity 
and, and, and psychosis. And God loves us still. Despite everything, we're still his sons and daughters. That never changes. He still loves us perfectly as the children in his family. He loves us passionately and persistently. And nothing can ever change that. So by his love, we have all been given the privilege to be called sons of God now, and sons and daughters of God. Now, as children of God, we find ourselves under the loving care of a good father, and now it must be asked, uh, what is that father to us, right? And what is his desired role and responsibility, all right, and and what does he uh, what does he want to impart to us as he pours out his love upon us? And we're going to consider four things this evening, and uh, these are going to be the four essential roles and responsibilities of a father, which is an excellent thing for me to consider at this point in my life. Um, this is actually very helpful to consider God as the perfect father you all as fuzzy people, and his desired role and responsibility with us. And the first thing that we're going to see is that he wants to be our protector. Now, Jesus said uh, in John 17, 11, and you could write it down or you can turn there very quickly, is the prayer of Jesus for his people. John 17, 11, he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. God desires to be our protector as our father. And we look at so many other things to protect us. And we look at our friends and our family. We look at our finances. We even look at ourselves. And I'll be honest, you know, uh, we we just, Miles, our, our, our little baby boy, he's a week and a day. And every single time I look at him, I'm reminded of how silly self-dependence must look to God, right? Because we, we think ourselves so strong. We think ourselves so competent and capable to provide and protect for ourselves. And the next thing we're going to talk about is provide. So I just stepped on my next point, but, but go with me. Pretend like I didn't say that. And we think we can, we can protect ourselves, right? Because uh, we're, we're capable. And, and, and then I look at him. And, and I, see, I see myself uh, as if through the eyes of God. And looking at him just saying, you are completely, completely incapable of, of the slightest advancement of your own existence. Right? You can't do a thing for yourself. Right? And, and, and you're, you're wholeheartedly dependent on another to look after you and tend to you. And this is what God has desired for us as as a father to protect us in, in this manner. And, and 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 I imagine God looking at us, you know, and and saying, you know, every single night as you sleep, there's an insurmountable tide of ills that call for you and come after you, things that demand of you. And I've protected you. Down the line, calling the numbers, 
every single one of them. And we wake in the morning completely oblivious to it. We go through our days completely oblivious to it because we didn't experience it. So to us, it didn't exist. But to God, all of it, each and every single bit of it, is very real. And, 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 and we have these moments where maybe it's the moment that we wake up in the morning, and for me it is. And, and, I, and I jump up in the morning and I think, well, I've got so much to do today because after all, it's all on me, right? And, and I gotta get out there because I'm, I'm trying to take care of things, I'm looking out for me because after all, nobody else really is. You can't protect yourself in this world. It's a silly idea to even imagine that you have a, a, a sense of, of, of a shield that you can lift against all the ills that are in the world desiring you. And listen, it's even sillier to imagine that our infantile creature comforts serve any sense of protection for us. Right? So I mean, it's silly to think that we can protect ourselves. It's even sillier to look at my kid and like he's screaming and I put a pacifier in his mouth and all of a sudden the world's fine. But that's what we do with our bank account. That's what we do with our job. That's what we do with, with our family. It's what we do with our friends. We, we use these things as pacifiers and we think, well, as long as I got this, then I'm protected. I'm safe. And this is what I really need. And, and, and God's saying, it's just, it's just a pacifier. That's not what you need. What you need is me. You need to reach out to me because this is what I want to be to you as a father. I want to be your protector. And then second, he wants to be our provider. Right? And we can be confident that we will be cared for with Christ as our provider. Luke 11, starting in verse 9, is the text for this one. Luke 11, verse 9 so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your sons asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, right? And that's where I got that point from earlier, right? This is us. This is the way Jesus describes us. If you, you know, and you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Now, Spurgeon said of this text, and this is the weird one, he said, if so, uh, or he said, if I am a child of God, if so, he will clothe me, my shoes will be iron and brass. That seems uncomfortable, but picturesque. And he will array me with robes of my Savior's righteousness, for he has said, bring forth the best robes and put it on him. He has also said uh, that he will put a crown of pure gold upon my head, and inasmuch as I am a king's son, I shall have a royal crown. I am his child. Then he will feed me, my bread shall be given me, and my water shall be sure. With God as your father and as your provider, there's no need to worry about these things, but we daily do, right? And, and in Malachi, he's telling us to come back to him as a father, and, and that's what we're trying to do tonight. We're trying to look at what it is that makes God a father and examine which one of these four components, maybe there's 
all four of them that are operating at a deficit that we could put our fingers on and say, that's how I need to come back as my father. And I find this one in me all the time where, where, where I, 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 I cry out and I say, I have so many needs. I have so many bills and they're piling up and, and I, I, I have to feed my family and I have, you know, little, little finances to do it. And, and this is a terrible state. And what can I possibly do to mend my situation? And I'm old enough to realize that all of these are problems, right? And, and, and you're all old enough to understand that all of these are problems and they're legitimate problems, all right? And as I said, uh, Miles, right, my boy, he's, he's one week old. And these are all still real problems. But is he old enough to realize that these are real problems? He doesn't, I don't know if he, I don't know how much he understands. Right? Like my mom comes over and she's like, oh, he's a little angel. He's thinking about, you know, dreams and visions from God. And I'm like, he's, you know, he's not thinking about anything. That kid, he's, he's staring at the snail, you know, dangling from the pack and play right above him. And that's probably it. That's as deep as it goes. You know, I don't even know if he could focus on it completely yet. But, <laughs> but these are all still very real problems. And these are problems can affect him, right? But he, he, he has this amazing way of not letting them bother him, right? And I don't know how it is. Maybe he just can't comprehend it, but he just lets it roll right off his back. He has this beautiful little thing that he does, right? If he has a problem, uh, right? Like let's say he's hungry. He opens up his mouth, right? He doesn't even open up his eyes. He just opens up his mouth and he knows, right, that he has a father. He knows that his father loves him. He knows that if he opens up his mouth, his father is going to stick a bottle in that mouth and then all of his problems are going to go away, right? He has the kind of faith that I want to have in my father as a provider, right? It's this perfect faith that, that says, I, I, I know you, I know that you love me, I know that you're going to take care of me and, and me being a human father and a far cry Right from the, 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 my holy father, I, I know that I would sacrifice everything to meet his needs. Right, I would, I would, I, I, I would give everything I have to, to, to clothe him and, and provide for him. And am I so foolish, right, that that I think uh, that that God wouldn't do so much more for me as his child? Because he is a perfect father, and I am, as he said already, a evil father. Right? God is aching to provide everything and anything that we would need. He says, all you need to do is ask. Right? All you need to do is just come to me, sit before me. You, know, you don't need to even open up your eyes. You can just open up your mouth, and I'll fill it. I'll take care of you. I'll be there for you. And, and sometimes I get fussy, right? And, and I don't understand why God is doing the things that he does. Uh, because there are these moments where I'm like, okay, I have faith. And, and, and then I, I still, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like he's protecting me, right? It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like he's providing for me. Right, and I'm like, so, so why, why is this, why is this happening this way? Because I thought that all you said I needed to do was just ask, right? Like knock, 
and, and, and it's a cute illustration. So I'm just going to do like Miles, and I'm just going to sit at home and just go, and write like God, a cheeseburger. It's just going to, boom, be there. And that'd be, that would be wonderful, right? But that's, and, and, so, I, and so I feel this way, and, and I'm like, God, you know, why, why, isn't it, why isn't it happening this way? And, and, and then, and like I said, you know, you're all going to be sick of, of my, of my kid by the end of the study, but, but, but listen, if, if he was left to his own devices, he would do nothing but sleep because that's really all he wants to do right now in his young life. And, and, uh, we found it to be an ever increasing necessity to, uh, you know, remove his, his cozy blankets and to uh, unbutton his ridiculously covered onesie and to even blow on his face to make him physically uncomfortable so that he'll wake up to a greater need that he has, that he can't see, that he can't perceive, that he's oblivious to. And and and, and I, I cry out to God, and I'm like, God, why... Why am I still going through all of this? I thought that you were my protector, God. I thought that you were my provider. And then God says, I'm, I'm just taking the blanket off for a minute, bud. Or I'm just unbuttoning your onesie for a second, kid. Or I'm just blowing on your face a little bit because you need to wake up to something more important. Right? Because it's been eight hours. You've been sleeping through the lot of it. You need to feed. Right? It's it, It's healthy for you to wake up and realize a more pressing necessity. So I'm going to provide for this greater need now. You'll be grateful for it later. So he says, I'll protect you. And that protection will perfectly prepare you for eternity. And now I'll provide for you and perfectly give you everything you need in order to continue on to maturity and now next, he is our guide. You got those fingers ready. You can turn to Psalm 73, verse 24. You just flip on over there quickly or jot it down. And Psalm 73, 24 says, You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. I love that verse. Guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. So I was talking to my dad uh, a few months ago. Um, <clears throat> we were actually up at their up at their place for dinner, and I was telling him about this idea that I had for a book that I've been wanting to write. Um, and I've been taking notes for this book over the last year or so, and uh, just been you know kind of jotting them down on my phone and uh, and all that. And and, and it's it's a terrible idea for a book, and I'm perfectly aware of that. So those of you, because uh, I'm going to share it. And then, and, and then you're all gonna, then you're gonna think, well, my, that's a dumb idea, and and you would be, and you would be correct in thinking that. Um, but it's a book about these lessons that my dad has taught me growing up uh, about how to be, how to be a man. And they were great lessons that he taught me that I really want to pass down to my little man. Uh, so I, I, I would write the book for no other purpose than other to than to read it to one person, uh, and it would be my my little man child, so that he can have an edge on the world, 
the same way that, that I clearly have, I guess. That's what I'm saying. And, and I said, okay, so this would be chapter one, Dad. And he's like, okay, this is a dumb idea, but what do you got? What, and my dad's looking at me like, what great piece of wisdom have I ever taught you? And I said, so chapter one would begin this way. Uh, and it would just be a, a quotation or really a lesson, and then you, you unpack it and you discuss it. Chapter one, real men don't wear shorts. Because that was a lesson that he taught me, right? And that's, that's something that, that seems weird to most of you, but that was, that was a legitimate lesson. It was a lesson received the summer before fifth grade while shopping for back-to-school clothes with my dad. And, and he, he told me, you know, real men don't wear shorts. And I remember distinctly putting them back on the shelf. <laughs> and then he said, yeah, there you go. It's time to grow up. Stop looking like a four-year-old. You're ridiculous. And, and I never wore shorts again my entire life. I haven't worn shorts since that day out in public. And I occasionally wear work shorts at home. And even then, I feel ashamed of myself when I do it because he is so ingrained this idea into my head. Um, but, but this is, you know, he, he's, he's guided me through life with these little bits and pieces of wisdom. You know, real men don't wear shorts is one of them. And, and uh, rarely have I deviated from the teachings of my father, and they're ridiculous, right? How much more should I adhere to the instructions of my heavenly father? Because his, his, his guidance is, is life-giving and soul-enriching. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't give us flippant rules regarding our attire. Right? He isn't, he, he, it's, it's, it's silly. He gives us essential rules impacting our eternity and the hereafter of those all around us. He is our guide, and he desires to be that to us as a father. Right, we're on this path, as the psalm says, and, and we can see the spot directly in front of us. We can't see around the bend. We can, we can only imagine the end, but God sees it all, and he sees this glorious end, and that's where he's taking us. Right? That's the course that, 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 that he has for us, and it's a bumpy course, and, and there's no one saying that, that, it's, uh, that it's like, you know, uh, the Wizard of Oz, and that's a bad reference because I've never seen The Wizard of Oz, so I have no idea what was on their course. But it's not a yellow brick road, right? It's not something that's just glorious and beautiful and you can just go skipping along with your buddies. There's plenty of bumps along this path, charted. But we can be grateful for the bumps because I, I like to think that, that around those bumps and, and, and as he's leading me across those bumps, he's doing so so that we can avoid pits. Right? He always has our best in mind. Right? He always has the end in mind. And he guides us gently, compassionately, and gracefully to that end. So that we can reach that end. And sometimes uh, he does so with a heavy rebuke. Like that night that I, I sat in Malachi 1. And I like to think that, that would, that's, that's a normal thing. That's a good thing. It's a good thing for a father to do that to his child, to sit down and say, listen, you're on this path, and you're being reckless. You're being silly. You're being flippant. And I love you, so I'm going to share this with you. 
I, 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 my heart breaks for you because I see you charting your own, your own course that is going to lead to something devastating. And I'm not saying that there's this, that there's this plan written in the stars and you have to go step by step. And every minute, you know, before I go to Starbucks, I have to say, God, is it in your will for me to go to Starbucks? I'm talking about the way God guides us with wisdom and love and compassion, the way he leads us with grace, the way he puts it all before us and says, I want what's best for you. That's why I'm telling you these things. It has nothing to do with shorts. It has everything to do with its heart. Right, that, that desires for us to grow up to, to not be children, but men and women loved by our creator and loving others in the same manner. And finally, he is a good friend, and that's the last one, right? So first he protects us, he provides for us, he's our guide, and he's our good friend. You know, there's an amazing uh, transition that happens in the relationship between a father and a son, and I imagine also a daughter, but I've never been a daughter, so I can't really speak for that. And I was born, uh, and my dad wasn't there. He was on the toilet, actually, when I was born. Um, he, the, nurses, the nurses told him that I was, you know, coming, and, uh, and, and I know he, he really didn't want to see that. Um, so he went and got a cup of coffee, and they, they pounded on the door, and he was in the bathroom, and they said, your son's coming. And, and he said, yeah, <laughs> busy. <laughs> and so he came when, when he had c- completed his task. And then he came into the room and saw me. And, and he told my mom uh, to introduce uh, me to him when I was 12. Because <laughs> he, he said, you know, uh, he's, he's not going to understand anything. And I can't really interact with him. And, and what, what could he possibly have that would be stimulating for me and and what could i say to him that would be you know uh, easily comprehended uh, you know, for his his infantile mind and um I, I was he was like you know he's too young and and when he's 12 then we'll then we'll talk maybe um and my dad isn't perfect all right and now looking back i think that he was just really afraid and I see that same look when he comes over to our house and, and he sees, like, our baby. Um, you know, there's part of him that I know he really wants to hold our baby, right? But he's still, you know, he's still trying to be, you know, that tough, aloof, distant guy. Um, but, you know, I see, I see him nowadays. And... Uh, and he lingers in my doorway. He comes up daily to water our lawn. And, and I can't figure out why, you know, but he drops by our house every single day to water our lawn. And then he hangs around. I can see him walking around the house, kind of peeking in the windows, but not, not trying to look like he's peeking in. Because he, he also, you know, doesn't want to invade our space and everything like that. But, you know, if I pop the door open, he spins around like, oh, it was an accident. I didn't know you were there. And, and then we, we talk and we have these great conversations. And, and, and I imagine that it's the same way with our Heavenly Father. You know, my dad now daily pursues me. And I think it's that way with, with God. You know, he wants, he wants 
to be our father. And in that, and, and in that there is this, you know, he wants to protect us. He wants to provide for us. He wants to guide us. But he also really wants to be friends with us. Right, just like my dad at this point in his old, you know, elderly years has gotten past this thing where like, oh, I don't want to talk to that thing. You know, what could it possibly understand? You know, where where he longs for these moments, where he daily looks for it and tries to find it. He he wants to cultivate this relationship that he missed when we were just you know, the foul-smelling infants. And there isn't much more that a father desires. And I think that, that, that this is what God has always wanted. I think that this is the heart, right, that, that spawns Malachi chapter 1. It's the heart of a father that has wanted to protect, that has wanted to provide, that has wanted to guide, that has wanted to be a friend to his people and that has at every turn been ignored, been dismissed, been rejected. And he says, if I'm your father, in verse 6, why do you not honor me as a father? Because I don't want to just be your distant king, right? The one that you look to and say, well, he's there and he's always going to be there and he rules whatever. He's God. I don't want to be someone that you mechanically serve and you show up every day and you say, well, I got to do this and I got to do that and I got to read my Bible and I got to pray and all this. Because I want to be so much more than that and I want to be that to you. I want to have this relationship with you. It's what I want for everyone else in the world, but I can't have that with them. I can have that with you. And then you can show them what it looks like to be loved so persistently, so passionately, and so perfectly, if you would just come back to me, if you would just rest in my arms, I, your father, you, my son or daughter, when you allow me to do that, I receive no greater honor. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for, Lord, your word in this text. And, Lord, how personal and probing it's been to me over the last three weeks. Lord, to consider the, the heavy rebuke on the surface of it and the breaking heart of a father underneath it. It's easy to read a chapter like this and just say, oh my, you can be so harsh when you want us to understand something. And it's true. Lord, you're using this the same way. You know, we unbundle miles to wake us up. Lord, you use this chapter to shake us. Lord, to drive your word home in our hearts where it demands residence, Lord, so that we can adhere to you. But Lord, it's so much more than that. It's not just a harsh wind on our face. Lord, it's a father filled with love, overflowing with kindness, wanting nothing but our best. 
I pray, God, that daily we would, Lord, we'd see you in everything. We'd see you in all the wonderful ways that you protect us, that we're oblivious to, because we're protected. Lord, that you provide for us, that we forget to thank you for, because we're just so used to being provided for. Lord, and how wonderfully you've guided us through so many pitfalls. Lord, that we that we didn't have to endure because we had a companion offering us wisdom. Lord, and I thank you, God, that you are on top of all of that. You you are our friend. You daily linger. Lord, at the, at the doorway of our heart to meet with us, to talk to us, to just share with us, show us how much you love us. Lord, that we can receive your love and that we can reciprocate it. I pray, God, that we would be children here that are fully connected to you in all four areas. Lord, that we would that we would follow you, be grateful to you. And Lord, be firmly in your arms. Lord, as you, as you gently hold us, constantly love us. And Lord, for that we do praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.